Welcome back to America's Talking. I'm Austin Berg. Today, I'm so pleased to be joined by Jim Lorraine. Jim is the president and CEO of America's Warrior Partnership. He served in the U.S. Air Force as a flight nurse with nine combat deployments and retired as the deputy command surgeon of the United States Special Operations Command after 22 years of service. He became the founding director of the U.S. Special Operations Command Care Coalition, served as special assistant for warrior and family support to the chairman, Joint Chiefs of Staff. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. No, Austin, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Could you talk to us about what the... I, I know it's really hard in this conversation when we talk about veterans and maybe something that frustrates you is that folks, I'm sure all the time paint with a very broad brush, but I'm, and I may do that with this question, but what are some of the biggest challenges faced by veterans returning to civilian life? Maybe some that most people don't, don't even think about when they think about that transition. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the biggest issues that veterans who transition to civilian out of the military back to civilian life is you know, when you join the military, you got recruited out of your hometown or wherever you're from. And then and then you were put through about, you know, anywhere from six months to a year of, of training to get you from becoming from being a civilian to becoming a soldier, sailor, airman, marine, coasty, whatever, uh, guardian, which is Space Force now. And then you served your time. And then literally you were. You're given a five-week course, which is TAPS, um, Transition Assistance Program, and um, five weeks, and then you're sent home. And, and you're expected to change back to become being a civilian after your entire time. So I think, you know, one of the things that when I transitioned out of the military, my biggest issue was, who do I trust? So, and I said to my civilian friends, I don't know how you all do this because when I was in the military and I'd walk into a room and there'd be 10 people in uniform there, I knew it's just by looking at them in uniform. I knew who they were, how senior they were, where they'd been, what they did. I knew almost everything about them without ever saying a word. Right. And I knew that that was their true self because that's their uniform they were wearing. Right. So then I come to this, I become a civilian and I walk into a room of people in suits and other things, and and you have no idea who is who, what they did, what they what they really did, what they do, who do you trust, who don't you trust, um, what's in it for them, what's are they really trying to help you? It's it's a uh, it's an environment that uh, coming out of the military after twenty three years was was very scary, and uh, took me a long time to get used to it. And it came from building relationships, and it just took time to to get to know people and trust them more. Um, so I think I think if in terms of transition, that's probably one of the biggest uh, the biggest things is we don't do a good job of giving service members the time and distance to to transition. On the flip side of that, what do you think is sort of an untapped or under recognized strength of the veteran community? Uh, so what I would say is there was a great study done by City Year um, a few years ago, and what they found was that vo- veterans volunteer at a 90% higher rate than non-veterans. So we're, we're willing to volunteer. We're will- willing to step up. We have, the, we call them soft skills, leadership, followership, more importantly, followership, um, uh, skills that, that they can bring to a community um, that I think don't, aren't necessarily recognized. And then, then there's the other piece of it 
that I think that in the most part, the American people think that everyone who served in the military is damaged goods, that we have post-traumatic stress, that we have, we've, we've seen dead people, that we've, you know, that we've been in, actively engaged in combat. Um, and what we found through our surveys at America's Warrior Partnership, and they're available on our website, is that 85% of the veterans are doing great. They're doing fine. Um, they're, they're, they have a job. They're taking care of their families. Matter of fact, when we survey veterans, all, all veterans, um, the top three things consistently the veterans are looking for, number one, physical recreational activities. Number two, connections to other veterans. Number three, volunteer opportunities. And usually the fourth is either access to healthcare or, or advising on financial issues. Not, not, fund, not, not a grant or not emergency funding, but how do I manage my money? And um, uh, which is not something, a skill that they teach you in the military very well. So, so when you look at it across the board, I always say the best communities are the ones who really attract veterans because they're going to in turn end up giving back more than they're going to take. But I think that there's a perception in the, in the American people that veterans are broken. And while we've tried to normalize and make it okay to seek assistance, I think we did that. We've said that so much that everybody thinks, well, everybody in the everybody who served in the military must be broken, or must be, you know, have post traumatic stress. That's really interesting. That was the those were survey results of the entire, you know, of some some representative sample of the veteran population. The number one thing was some kind of recreational physical activity. What do you think yeah, explains that? One, not just that, but it was consistent for uh, over a seven year period. So we've done a survey every year. Um, and, and we've had survey populations anywhere from 2,000 to 6,000 that are spread across the United States. But it always um, shocks me that, that those are always in the top three, right? Interesting. And, I, and what explains yeah, that is that if that's the, the runaway, no pun intended, number one, what, that's just, you know, out of, out of habit of being, you know, such a physically demanding position for, for so many years? Or what do you think explains that? I think there. I think most most veterans, except old broke ones like me, are are interested in being active and running and the activities. There's a there's a program called Team Red, White, and Blue um, that is a is a is a veteran community focused program focused on physical and recreational activities and socialization uh, to where they bring veterans and non veterans together around CrossFit stuff and 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 exercise. I, I think that's that that's the population um, that's out there. But the other thing that we did, this was interesting, is that we looked, so then in the survey that we do, we asked, you know, what are you seeking from the community? Again, number one is physical recreational activity for the vast majority. But what we do is we later in the survey, we ask uh, this thing called, it's the adult hope snake, uh, Snyder's adult hope scale. And it's a measure of hopefulness and hopelessness, right? And so what we found was when you then take what are you seeking and you stratify it between hopeful, sort of in the middle, and then hopeless, what you find is those that are hopeful are physical recreational activity, volunteer opportunities, and, and emergent, you know, things like that. But when you look at hopeless veterans, which is about, again, 10 to 15% of the veteran population, 
their number one thing they're seeking is transportation. And then their number two thing they're seeking might be housing or employment. And number three might be education or use of their GIBL. But hmm. but so I think, and the reason why we did this, I said, you can't look at veterans as a whole. You have to segment them between those are, that are hopeful and those that are hopeless. And then focus your programs on hopeless veterans and focus your programs on hopeful veterans, right? And um, our model at America's Warrior Partnership is that we get to know, our model is to know all the veterans who live in your community. And we feel mm -hmm. like whether you're seeking help or not, um, because the vast majority want to volunteer, get them to volunteer, get them to be involved. It's great. It'll help your community. Do you think, so that's really interesting that, so among those, that segment that was the most hopeless, number one's transportation, is that, that seems like such a pedestrian thing or, you know, such an easily solvable uh, thing. And so is that, is that truly their biggest need from the community or is that when they say transportation, is that really wrapped up in a lot of different things? Can you unpack that a little more? It, it's, it's, it's lack of access to, so if you don't have mobility in the United States, you're you're you have to look for public transportation. Unless you're in a major major city, it's probably not that well developed. Um, an example: one of our communities, Buffalo, New York, that there were veterans who were living in Niagara, New York, which was north of the city of Buffalo, and they would have to take a bus down to the city, and then from the city they'd have to take a bus up east of Buffalo to where the uh, vet center, the clinic was. And so there was no bus that ran from Niagara to the vet center. And so we went back and we talked to the city, we showed her the demographics and the need we had, and they created a bus route that went from Niagara out east. Well, what happened was it solved the transportation issue for access to care, but, but because it was cheaper to live out in the east, out in the country, veterans moved from the city out to where their healthcare was, and then they bust into this, to work. It just flipped it, and so their transportation problem went away, went down. They were able to get better jobs. They were able to have a low, lower cost of living. Mm. But um, you know, when you think about it, if you don't have transportation and you're trying to use your GI Bill, that's a barrier. You're trying to get to healthcare, that's a barrier. You're trying to get to work, that's a barrier. It's a barrier to everything in life. What we found was that veterans who were the most hope, hopeless, their number one issue was transportation. Three down the line was home, well, it was housing. They, transportation was more important than housing. Right. That's yeah. very interesting. So, and I assume that, uh, you know, probably on the way to <laughs> deeply tied to housing is your access to transportation, right? That it's location, 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 just like what you were saying. And once that transportation was available, it probably became much easier to access housing. That's yeah. really interesting. You guys, I know our, our uh, America's Warrior Partnerships really focused on preventing veteran suicide. That is obviously a, a small sub-segment, a small minority. Can you talk about what are some of those big indicators that you're looking for that are you know major red flags? And then what are some of the most effective interventions that, that you've seen? Yeah. So, so major red flags that we're looking for are... Um, so we're, we've, we're, we've been able to correlate death, death data to military service. So I'll give you an example. Uh, someone who served in the military but got, had a demotion during their service um, increases their odds of taking their own life by 56%. It's huge. Um, 
somewhat so so then when you're talking to a veteran you know you might want to say did you during your service did you get demoted if that's the case that's a red flag one of the other things we found was you know we went into this thinking that you know the army and the marine corps would be the the most uh, the service most at risk what we found was the coast guard was number one was the greatest risk if you served in the coast guard you were at greater risk than somebody who served in the marine corps the army the Army, the Navy, and then the Air Force in, in that order. Um, and, and we thought maybe that it was skewed because of the states that we had data from were Mariner, Mariner states type stuff. Um, and then when we talked to the states, they said, no, no, we think it's right. Because the Coast Guard is a law enforcement agency. They don't, when they don't succeed, it's not a combat. They, they don't succeed because they couldn't save a civilian or, or somebody who, who didn't look to get into the position that they were in. So we look at that. We looked at um, for every year that you served in the military, your risk of taking your own life decreased by 2% per year. And so there was a thought that everybody who got out, no matter how long you served, within the first year, that was your most risk. That was the point of greatest risk. And what we found was that wasn't the point. And it depended on how long you serve. So we, we looked at two things, length of service and then time since discharge. And what we found at length of service was the longer you serve, the lower your risk. Those that served less than three years were at highest risk, which is unique because in the all-volunteer force, most of the contracts were four-year contracts. So mm -hmm. if you served less than three years, there was a reason you got out of the military. And right. that that reason what we think, what we see is that stuck with you for the rest of your life because you never shook it. You were at risk your entire life from whatever reason you got out of the military 30 years before. Um, so big red flags we're looking at, um, demotion while serving and a, a really short stint, shorter, short stint, much shorter than average. Yeah, yeah that um, we saw that uh, uh, um, combat was a... Uh, those that, de that deployed was a protective factor. They had far lower suicide rates than somebody wow. who, had, who had deployed. Um, so, so then it's like, okay, who do we look at? We found the National Guard and Reserve were at greater risk than the active duty. Um, th these are the things that you look at. But, I mean, it's sort of the narrative has been going this way. And what we're finding is that the narrative needs to go the other way. Right. It's not, it's not the, uh, grizzled, uh, not say uh, if you're not, uh, you know, deployed, you're not grizzled, but it's not the, you know, um, person who's served for 20 years has been deployed all across the world has, has seen active duty combat. That is actually not what we should think of as the, as the archetype for, for folks yeah. at risk. Yeah, we think that they had more services and that they're, you know, they had, uh, while it was a risk, it wasn't significant. It wasn't significant. Can you talk to me about what you think you guys are sort of on the um, if this was in the criminal justice field, this would be the reentry population. So it's folks who have, are out of the system and they're being served. And a lot of the folks in that community, they're dealing just as you were talking about with problems that have been there for many, many years, obviously, with uh, the population yeah. that you serve. What do you think that the military could be doing better while folks are, you know, under their supervision, under their watch to kind of prevent these downstream effects that that you're seeing and, and trying to address yeah I, I think 
I, I think number one, I would look at, so right now the recruitment numbers are down, so there's more waivers. I would look at the waivers that, that are being granted. Um, granted, you have to hit your recruitment recruitment numbers, but it shouldn't necessarily be at the at the cost of a long-term in, uh, engagement. Um, I think that's number one. That's just starting out. Um, and that think, means, and how would that help? That is, that's basically raising the bar for the types of uh, yeah, so people who are going to serve. They're lowering lowering the bar, so they're right. they're saying, hey, if you have if you have a drug record, if you have a a criminal record, if you have other history that would previously have prohibited you from military service, we're going to waive that and let you come in. And okay. um, yep. and uh, you know, I had a friend who said, just because the tiger tiger doesn't lose its stripes. It always has the stripes, but I mean, it's something to, to keep track of. I think that, uh, so it's a recruitment. I think it's the engagement during, um, uh, during service and, and talking about the, the, the positivity. I think it's the transition. Like we talked about, how do you transition to be uh, a purposeful life afterwards that um, just because you left your, your tribe doesn't mean you're alone. You're not, you're not alone. And that's what we as America's Warrior Partnership try to create is an environment at a community where veterans don't feel like they're alone. Um, you know, I, those, are the, those are the big things. The one thing I also want to mention are, are a red flag. We found that those people that lived alone um, post-service as a veteran were increased their odds of taking their life by 40% if they lived alone. So how do you find people who are isolated maybe living alone and, um, and, and huddled up and get them out, uh, get them engaged, let them know that somebody has their back and that uh, they can, they can contribute. Um, so I don't, I, this might be way too specific, but I, this might help illuminate kind of the difference in numbers we're, we're talking here. If I give you Jim, a person who was demoted in the coast guard, had a three year stint and is living alone, what is their odds of suicide versus, um, say, just your typical service member? What What is the delta there? I think I, you know, the the math is, but I mean, I think it's you have a high, high really high likelihood, and and for us, the our our approach to that and what our position is, that's the person we need to find. We need to stay engaged with. We need to we need to give them the confidence that they're not alone. Uh, and basically to go back to the hope scale, we need to build hope. We need to give them hope for the future. One of the things when we engage with veterans, I always say, where do you want to be in five years? Right. And, and then let's bring the programs together to get you to where you need to be in five years. If somebody says to me, and, and this has happened, I can't even think to what I'm going to do tomorrow. That's a huge red flag. And then I'm like, all right, let's get you beyond Let's get you looking out to the future, seeing the possibility of what you can do, and let's not live day to day. And I and I think uh, all those those red flags that you brought up indicate a living day to day, and they're not yeah. looking long term. They don't know. I think most veterans, when they get out, they have no clue that there's somebody who can help them move forward. Um, and uh, and we we try to do that. Uh, I want to. You know, one of the things that makes us a little bit different than others, I mean, our mission is to, to partner with communities to prevent suicide. And, but we're not a suicide prevention program um, in that uh, we look at 
we look at suicide prevention as an outcome. Okay, so if I do good housing, good employment, good transportation, good physical recreational activity, if I bring all those pieces and, and build that around the veteran, their suicide rate will go down. Um, but it's not a, everyone thinks suicide prevention is a mental health issue. And it's, and I keep saying, it's not a mental health solely issue. It's a component of it, but it's, it's holistic. It's a bigger picture than that. Mm. So speaking of that bigger picture, uh, for folks who care about this issue and would like to better serve veterans in their community, maybe dealing with some of this, what are, what's the, what's the biggest thing or a couple of things people should, should seek to do in their own community? Find a vet, talk to them. Don't, don't be afraid to ask, you know, did you serve in the military? What'd you do? Where'd you go? Um, if you ask a veteran, especially a Marine, they're going to tell you everything you want to know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, they like, you know, if you, if you, if you haven't met a Marine, you haven't met a Marine cause they would have told you the first thing, uh, when you met them. But the, the thing is, we believe is, is outreach and engagement, get to know who the veterans are, understand where they are in their life and where they want to go and then connect them to resources. And America's Warrior Partnership, if you don't have the resources in the community, um, uh, communities and veterans can reach out to us um, at, uh, at americaswarriorpartnership.org. Um, we've got a program called The Network that is basically, it, if you come to us, we figure out who you are, we'll connect you to your community, we'll help the community. Um, that's our piece of it. And then we have five communities throughout the United States that are branches. So everything from Alaska Warrior Partnership to the Panhandle of Florida to the Navajo Nation of uh, Arizona and New Mexico, um, which is a unique, that's a unique population to serve. That will be uh, for our next episode. I'm very curious about that. Uh, Jim Lorraine, he's the president and CEO of America's Warrior Partnership. Jim, thank you for your service in the military. Thank you for your service two members of the military and thanks for talking. Austin, thanks for having us. I appreciate it.